you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior as we continue our Equitable Impact Week. And today, we are going to be focusing on storytelling. We're going to be thinking about the metaverse, your favorite streaming platform, movies, and maybe even uh, a little bit about the legacy of Pamela Anderson. And we have a supersized panel, and I'm so excited. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with some of our more familiar faces. Uh, we have Hannah Hickman joining us live from Los Angeles, Mike Cobri from Matt Adams, uh, Jackie Chicoin, Davion Harris, who is our Equitable Futures lead and is going to be with us all week on this amazing set of briefings. Got a couple uh, other familiar faces here, but one person making her Sparks and Honey briefing debut. We have um, Camilla McGarry and Chantel Stewart, who are both joining us. They are uh, our interns for the summer and have been doing killer work. I'm really excited they're joining us. We asked very specifically to have them on. And of course, we have one other person to welcome, Lola Bakari, who I'm told we've been trying to have also on the briefing for quite some time. She is an inclusive marketing strategist, and we're really thrilled to have her here. Yeah, exactly. Either you've been wanting me to come on, or I've been wanting to come on. One of those. (laughs) Well, it's finally here. The moment's finally here, and we're very excited to have you on. So as I said, we're going to start talking about the the future of of storytelling and the way in which we're going to bring more equity into the space. I love, we were just joking about this, I love that Matt brought House of the Dragon in here, but that is maybe for another discussion. But, you know, today I think fundamentally the, com- the question we want to get at is what strides uh, in the entertainment industry, can the entertainment industry take um, to match the sort of diversity of their audience? Look, uh, you know, audiences are, are, are looking more and more, let's call it, uh, you know, diverse, and, and there's a lot more homogeneity coming out there. And, you know, this is an industry that has not always done so well with representation. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on, and we have the pleasure often to work directly with clients in the entertainment space and help them uh, sort of realize that promise to reflect what audiences really want to hear. So today, we're going to be talking about some of the best practices there, maybe a couple of the worst practices, but I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. And obviously, we've got something like 20,000 signals. This is a very well-discussed topic, not just here in the U.S., but our system is picking up uh, a ton of content, actually. We even had to limit it uh, to English to make sure that we were that we actually knew what the heck we were looking at. Um, but we will start with our zeitgeist map, as always. And I think we, we now know the hero uh, element of culture for this entire Equitable uh, Futures um, series, and that's perceptual diversity. That's the ability and the value and the business uh, import of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I think it's incredibly important for this conversation today. I can see a couple others that I think are really important, like meme culture and neo-celebrity. But Matt, how about you? Because uh, you helped with the research on this and, and led this um, this uh, story development. So, what signals here? Do you, or what? Excuse me. What trends here do you love? Do you think are most operable for today? So, I think two big ones for me, right? Polarization and taboo toppling. Polarization, just because as we move into more diverse storytelling, there's going to be some tension between whose stories get told and how we're telling those stories. When it comes to taboo toppling, I think that's going to be really important because as we move into the future of storytelling, we're going to have to start unpacking a lot of the stories that we've put a lot of shame around. So we'll see where we move forward with those. Yeah, and one thing I know we're going to get to, Mm -hmm. too, is when we think about that taboo toppling, it's not just the story that's being told. It's like how the production gets made, who's in the room, where the money comes from. There's a lot of of taboos I think we're trying to talk. Uh, we'll, We'll hopefully topple. Uh, 
today. So let's dive on in, and I've got some fun data for some interesting data for everyone. So television and movies are, you know, well, movies are a century-old medium at this point, and television's getting up there too. But only in the past few years have we really made strides recognizing that business case for representation in the two. Um, but what's clear is that inclusive content isn't just a nice to have, it's a need to have. It is really tightly linked uh, to how successful content can be. So time.com reports here that quote, television that reflects the growing racial and ethnic diversity of the US resonates with audiences and industry stakeholders. A study from the UCLA uh, released late last year shows. So this is a really broad uh, ranking um, a study. They, they looked at 461 different scripted television shows across a whole bunch of platforms, a whole bunch of networks. They really picked their data. And, and one thing I'll add here, so viewership from adults between ages 18 to 49 often peaked when a show had a majority-minority cast. And for the first time in the study's history, because they've done this a whole bunch, the percentage of scripted broadcast TV acting roles for people of color actually exceeded the number of people of color in uh, the U.S. About 44% of speaking roles went to people of color. 43% of people in the U.S. are actually people of color. So that's even better representation. I wanted to show you one thing, though, that Matt and I were sort of having a, a little bit of a laugh at earlier. Um, hold on just a second here. So there is some really interesting data in this piece that I wanted to highlight. Um, and of course, we will get to Issa Rae in a minute, so hold tight. Um, what this study shows, as I, as I get it up here, is right here. Okay, so this is a study of broadcast, this is from that study, broadcast shows, cable shows, and digital shows. And if you look, they have, they've been looking at, uh, at, at uh, shows that have more than a 50% minority cast, so majority minority cast, and ones that have less than 11%, which is sort of their threshold for like a really unrepresentative show. And what I think is really interesting is that while broadcast network is a little more representative in those majority-minority shows than, say, cable shows or digital shows, those real prestige things we expect from Netflix, um, broadcast television does a, has a lot less content that is overwhelmingly white than, say, cable shows or digital prestige television. So I'm really curious as we start, and Lola, I saw you uh, make a, I, I saw you, that caught your eye. What do you make of that data point? What does that say to you? And, and we'll get into what I think that means uh, overall. Well, I, I mean, I think it speaks to just the obvious business sense of appealing to a wider amount of, you know, a, a wider swath of an audience than not if you're looking to optimize the business model of creating content. Yeah. So, like, that's at its most fundamental level what I find so obvious about the insight that you're sharing with us. It's new to us, but if we really think about it, of course content that has diversity attracts more people. Yeah. More people see themselves in the content, more people see their aspirations for our country and, and how people feel, how comfortable people feel, how safe people feel. More people see themselves in that. And so for broadcast to have um, the best numbers here doesn't surprise me. They are probably thinking about um, the efficiency of their content business model a little bit more closely than maybe a Netflix or a cable network might. I'm glad you brought up Netflix because it's funny to see this knowing that they're sort of internally kind of like, you know, beating themselves up over like what's the right messaging and there's lots of problems with, you know, shutting down a number of their more representative shows. And it's like, it's funny that the ABCs and the CBSs of the world have already kind of figured this out, you know, and to a degree. But they, representation yes, but they have, they have recognized the value of making sure that they minimize those number of shows. And I think you're still seeing Netflix and Hulu struggle with that. Matt, what's, what's your thought on this? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting too. For me, I always look at the differences between like 90s entertainment and today. So it's like, I remember growing up, there's a lot of television shows that I saw that were pretty diverse in casting. But as we moved forward in time, I saw that go away a lot. And then also a lot of the new television shows on streaming networks are very focused on, you know, TV shows that appeal to like mystery narratives or TV shows that are reclaiming, not reclaiming, but going into old European backgrounds and historical narratives, which is not diverse, but it's also a cop-out in a way. So that's kind of what I've been seeing in that. So. And I think to that point, I mean, just the, the content, right, of, of what we're seeing in these stories. I mean, you brought up the 90s and the evolution, but even today, I mean, we look at numbers and data, and as we know, we can't think about it or look at it just, you know, at face value. There's a lot more to it in terms of the types of stories, who is telling them. I know we're going to talk about the behind the scenes in terms of the creators, the directors, what they look like, and then even how people are being represented when they are being represented. But what what is that story that's being actually uh, depicted? Jackie, I would uh, add one more thing to that list that, that Davian was mentioning is the pay equity. When we talk about, you know, these stories and, and is inclusion and presentation, is it enough? I think we also have to be looking at, and the study did mention, you know, who is making money off of the, the backs of these stories? Uh, and is there sort of an equity in both the camera and behind the camera pay for all people who are involved in creating them? Yeah. I actually think that's an amazing transition. We, I, I mentioned we talk a little about Issa Rae, but um, Matt, do you want to tell us about what Issa Rae is doing with her sort of challenge to herself and to the industry about um, behind the camera? Yeah, so at a recent panel that uh, was hosted at Kane's Advertising Fest, Issa was with Liz Taylor and some other people, and she spoke, she said this, I have a mandate of making sure that 60% of my cast or my team is diverse uh, because she realizes her own power. Um, and she also says no to a job if the job has all white production cast. And um, and she and she wants to know, like, why would you want me to be a spokesperson for diversity when the people behind the camera are not diverse? So this really speaks to having some accountability. If you're speaking to diversity, be about it in the people that you're paying. Uh, so when it comes to the work itself, diversity is also important. But I, authenticity is the main ingredient that births insightful and innovative work. So Issa's new show, Rap Shit, is a Miami-based show about two high school girls who join together to form a rap group. Um, but Ray states that it's important to have locals behind the scenes, including writers contributing, for the people to feel immersed and so that the story is authentic. So I wanted to ask, like, you know, it's, it's very known that there's a wealth of credible and talented artists and producers across the spectrum of identities. However, we still run into issues where we see all white cis production brand teams. So what would you all say is the barrier to action for brands in 2022? Is it a, is it a legitimate barrier to action? And how should we hold brands responsible today? I mean, I can kick us off and say I think it's, it's accountability is a lot of it. And, you know, we have a tendency to shy away from wanting to sign up for absolutes when they might be challenging. Things like what Issa's doing with the 60% mandate and that personal commitment, that's what starts to spark a movement where people start to enforce, like self-enforcing within companies, within teams, that accountability. So I think that's a key barrier that we're seeing get a little bit better every single time someone makes an announcement like this. And then I think the other piece of it is understanding. So I get into this debate a lot. Like, I'm glad you brought up the 40-some percent number, 
right? This 60% over indexes that. And, and so, so some people, the Tuckers of the world, it, it, we knew it wasn't going to take long. Right. Um, the, <laughs> right before the camera yes, went on. Yes, we were. Yeah. Um, all good things, all good things. Um, but as you know, someone like, like Tucker Carlson might complain on his show, we're taking this too far. Now we're saying that it needs to be all diverse people, 60% more than there even are. But what Issa understands, and that we need everyone to understand, is that equity is about correcting a wrong historically. And that's, that, that's going to sometimes take overcorrecting to create new behaviors, new relationships. And I think that's a really good point because what we're not talking about, look, everyone knows that famous cartoon of the difference between equality and equity, right? Uh, with like equality is the ability for everybody to look over the fence. Equity is occasionally putting in things to help the shorter people look over that fence, right? It's a classic digital cartoon. And I think one thing that's really interesting here is in many ways, Hollywood is a very, not politically conservative space, but oftentimes creatively um, conservative, like it's like they really look for people who have a long, long track record. And candidly, there aren't that many, you know, Latino women cinematographers who've been working for 40 years, right? And so if you want to meet that, uh, you know, if you want to meet that equity threshold, you have to be willing to take some risks. There's some really fabulously talented ones out there who may have three or four years of experience, but they do need people who can give them that potential boost. And I think that's what's really important about an Issa Rae making this kind of challenge. I would love to see you know, uh, I would, I, I'm trying to, th I would love to see, um, uh, I don't know, who's, what's a white man, Ryan Reynolds, yes. I would love to see Ryan Reynolds make this exact same statement. To see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, Hollywood more so than a lot of industries really functions on like who you know. Yes. Um, you know, people move from job to job more quickly maybe than we do in other industries. And I think, but you could take that lesson and apply it to all different companies. It's like if you're only ever looking in the same place or for the same, to the same people to recommend people for your next job, you're always gonna get the same kind of people. And so you have to start looking in other places. Yeah. You have to be open to people with different types of skill sets or who come from a different background, maybe didn't go to UCLA film school. Um, and really like open up your world of when it comes to hiring. Yeah. Well, and, and let's be honest about that, that this is such an important point. How much is that lack of familiarity or a lack of being networked the real driver of the fact that you mentioned there aren't that many Latina cinematographers? Is it the experience or is it the lack of a mechanism to sort of get that initial, I'll trust you? Yeah. Because yeah. if you look at, I'll just say it, white men yeah. in a lot of these industries, they are getting that initial opportunity with no evidence of, of their capability. Yeah, uh, I mean, I and I, I mean, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought the uh, entertainment industry was the only they were the only people experiencing this. But it's definitely one where it's so high profile that making commitments like this really do matter. And Chantelle, you've done a, a bunch of work uh, for an entertainment client of ours, and Matt was talking about barriers to success, which I thought was really interesting. Are there any other barriers to success? Uh, that you might have come across, if it, you know, around storytelling, perhaps, not just making the actual content. Yeah, I mean, you've all been talking about the sense of traditionalism that's like kind of framing what storytelling actually is and who's informing the narrative, who's writing it. Um, but I think something that Issa had talked about in this article and something that Jackie and I have even talked about is um, participating in localized efforts to see what the community wants to see, how they want members of um, different marginalized communities or different um, members of different backgrounds to actually be elevated. How do they want to be represented in the media? Yeah. And instead of someone just saying, oh, we think you would be a good fit for this, is that like, actually, I see myself in a different, um, contributing um, different insight yeah. to, um, 
your your media background. I, I think that's I, what was this is set in Miami. You said right, like it should look like Miami. And candidly, I think one reason we have seen. I'm getting on a soapbox here for a second. I think one reason we see so much stuff set in Boston is that uh, Boston is a much less, it's a relatively diverse city itself, but the area is less diverse. And, you know, we don't push ourselves to be more inclusive when we set, we don't, when we ignore telling local stories in places like Miami that really are hyper, hyper diverse. Um, cool. Let's move on to some other mediums here, because I think we've laid out a couple of some of the major issues. And I wanted to start here with comic books. So comics and graphic novels have been popular in one form or another kind of forever. Um, but this niche, often I will call it nerd-coded uh, uh, content, has transitioned uh, in the digital age, thanks in part to technology and a new relevance with Gen Z, right? This is a very, this is just as legitimate a form of entertainment storytelling as, as TV or movies. And let's be real, they tend to steal from comics too. Um, so one thing that this article points out that I think is really interesting is that their comic books used to be firmly rooted in like the hero narrative, right? There's the hero, there's the supervillain, uh, and that's how the story goes, right? And one thing that this article notes is that the infusion of digital technology has let a lot more people become comic book creators themselves. And suddenly when you do that, you get a lot more storylines. So this article talks about the influence of manga and you see like high school drama comic books coming up, relationship and dating comic books. It doesn't have to just be the Silver Surfer versus Thanos, right? And that's in part because we've let some more people into the space. Look, I'd l and, and I think you, know, you can even see the hero narrative change a little bit. It's not something we want to toss out. It's just we want some more uh, diversity, and I think this is really interesting. Just, uh, oh, you know what? We took that one out. Um, there is a really good uh, ex um, example of this uh, where the House of Slay, which is a, uh, a new comic book series from uh, um, a couple of uh, Asian American influencers, Paral uh, Garung, Lara Kim, Philip Lim, Tina Lung, and Ezra J. Williams, um, not only sort of brings in new creators, but takes some of these really well known influencers, non white influencers, gives them a chance to shine and so, sort of so show off some of their, um, their own abilities and make them look really aspirational, which I love. And it's a definitely a, a different take on, again, that hero narrative. So um, Camilla, I know that you were very interested in this. I'm curious what your take is and why, why comics might be a really good medium for inclusive storytelling. Yeah, I really loved these signals. I thought they were really thought-provoking. And I think there are some really big advantages of comic book writing um, because there's uh, way less limitations, like creatively and financially. I think storytellers can really um, tell their stories in creative ways. Like if you want to have a superhero with this really niche superpower, you can write that and you can draw that. And there's no um, production limitations. Like you don't have to pay all this money to <laughs> tell the story in a creative way. You can just draw it and write it. And I think that's really powerful and it allows for um, creators who might not have access to these resources to really um, flush out their ideas. And um, yeah, I really, I thought it was amazing. And what these creators are doing is really powerful. Yeah, I think that's really cool. You know, that's such an interesting point because it reminds me of Issa Rae and how she got started with YouTube on an even lighter weight medium. Yeah. So that was a great point about comics being accessible. I think that's a fabulous point. Davian, I might put you on the spot here. You have a daughter who's approaching comic book age. I'm curious. <laughs> if you feel what your impressions are of how sort of representative some of that 
uh, visual mediums are, if you feel like it's fairly easy to, to find the titles that, that she might be interested in, or if there's still like a bit of a disconnect. Yeah, no, what, what resonated with me, interestingly, about um, these signals was the aspects that some people might think, okay, comic books, there's so many other mediums and spaces, whether you think about books or, or videos or, you know, TV shows, et cetera. But I think, you know, for my daughter, for instance, I mean, art is a big part of how she relates or expresses and even having the, you know, the, the crayons, right, in the right shade to color uh, her skin tone has been a thing. And so thinking about, you know, young brown girls and boys who are either looking to express themselves through art, and I think you brought up a really good point in terms of that financial and economic equity yeah. that's so important, um, but also having these other spaces and mediums where they pick up, you know, a comic book and are able to see not just the reflections from a visual standpoint, but even the stories that might not center on that sort of traditional hero, uh, you know, villain scenario or yeah. things that they can relate to and that can be fun or something that's engaging and appropriate for their age. Yeah. So. I think just overall having that, you know, many spaces and options, I think gets to what, why this is so important and significant. Yeah, love that. Um, should we move back to network television? Yes. <laughs> so speaking of network television, <laughs> friends. So uh, this signal is from New York Post, and I found it interesting because I want us to think a little bit more about rectification when it comes to a lack of diversity. Uh, there has been heated conversation around the 90s television show Friends, who was created by Marta Kaufman and its lack of diversity. And this show, as you know, many people know, that uh, features six friends who are all white, cis, hetero, while surprisingly living in Greenwich Village, which is a famously gay neighborhood in New York City, which is an historically diverse city. So fast forward to 2020 when George Floyd was murdered by the police. This really pushed Kaufman to reckon with the country's racist past and her own part in perpetuating systems of racism. So she stated, I knew then I needed to course correct which ultimately led Kaufman to admit her failure with a $4 million apology uh, that she invested in her alma mater at uh, Brandeis University. Uh, and this was towards the African and African American Studies program. And they ended up naming a professorship after her called the Marta F. Kaufman 78 Professorship in African and African American Studies. So this is going to support a distinguished scholar with the concentration in that study um, and also assist the department to recruit more expert scholars and teachers and map a long-term academic and research priority focused on black stories. So question for the panel. I find it very interesting that Kaufman or the university decided to name this after her because whoever is affiliated with the program is now affiliated with her name and her legacy on Friends. So do you all think that this is more performative than progressive? And in addition, is it necessary to rectify past diversity issues within entertainment in this manner, or is acknowledgement enough? So. I'd jump in and just say, um, I wasn't trying to be too critical of this article, just as I was reading it, but I definitely found it to be a performative measure more than anything, just because, um, I mean, when you talk about the professorship being named after um, Marta, Marta um, I, I think like if you're actually trying to make amends and rectify the uh, measures of the past, it shouldn't be about you at all. And when you talk about um, embracing diversity and equity and trying to attend to that, why are we simply looking at the African-American demographic and why aren't we expanding beyond that? Because when you're talking about diversity, that is not just one race. Um, I think we're all aware of that. And then when you talk about going back and rectifying measures of the past, there was this talk of a feedback loop um, yesterday. Yeah. 
And I've been thinking about that consistently uh, since then, where we could, like, over periods of time, not how many years has it been since Friends was created, it was before I was yeah, born, but I don't think it should take 25 years for you to look back and see, well, how is my work impacting a community? What do people actually think about it? Um, Camilla and I were talking about, like, this has been on Netflix, it's been on different yeah, yeah. Um, streaming services, and we're, she's just now saying, oh, I'm going to rectify the past. I'm going to try and fix my mistake, but she should be, well, I think brands should maybe look sooner than 25 years. Yeah. It should be like a every year, how is my work impacting the community? What effect is it having instead of, yeah. I'll go ahead and criticize openly this article and this woman for, and there's a quote at the end of it um, where she mentions like, you know, this isn't going to like fix the past, but like if I can keep making this change, then I'll feel unburdened. <laughs> and which to me felt very like, Oh, I, so this is what this is about. This is about making you feel yeah. better and not about creating change. And I think it's great to invest in, in education and to put, you know, money into something that supports young people of color. But at the same time, like, it, it feels very performative at the same time. And I think that there's other ways that she could be using her money to really make a change. She could be also investing in the industry and in creating like content that is more diverse than friends. That's where my head went. I mean, beyond the problematic nature of reacting to something that, right, you, you should have corrected, you know, 25 years ago and it being self-serving. I think it's, you know, writing a check and having, you know, a, a program named after you oh, <laughs> is, you know, one way of, of doing it. Or how do you, you know, think about the Issa Rae example and make the change, make a you know proclamation where you are going to figure out ways to facilitate more creators of, of color, uh, you know, to be in those situations where you don't have another friends, where it's an all white, white cast. So I think, you know, how can you do more, do the work as opposed to, you know, writing a check and, yeah. and leaving it there. It's funny because I feel like we talk about you could never have another friends. You never have another breakthrough show like that that looked like that today. But, you know, Girls got criticized in its first season oh. for being all white. And that came out 10 years ago. I mean, things were a little better than... I, let me point out a quick... There are still shows. Right. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I want to make one point. Well, you make your point, and I'll make my point. Well, I, all, all I would say is there, is there does seem to me... I, I, I think they're totally right about the press release being off here. I do think there is somewhat of a tension, and this is like, if you want to get really Talmudic here, there is like this old tension between do you donate anonymously and keep yourself out of it, or do you donate and make a big deal of it because it may push people to do similar acts, right? Um, and I want to, I think it is, I think we need to give people space to try to rectify wrongs, and I think we need to give people space to maybe publicize, publicize that appropriately. Um, but given the industry that she's in, I, like, I just don't know that the, that the producers of Cheers or whatever, which was also a, a basically all-white show, are going to do anything to change here. And so what might be more impactful here would just be for her to give that money to Brandeis, give some money to Issa Rae's production company or whatever, invest in that, and just like kind of keep quiet. I, it's sad. I'm sorry. She, I, I don't know that we need to be the people who unburden her, and she can do good work and make herself feel better without putting herself at the center of that tension. Just my take. Oh, the centering. Yeah, I mean, I think we can give space while also asking for space for dialogue. So this is one of the things that I wish 
we would stop hearing is that, you know, when we're critiquing people, we're somehow silencing them or... No, it's just, it's feedback, which is always good, right? Um, So I think in this case, first of all, a funny thing is that I wasn't allowed to watch Friends growing up, and this is why. My mother was like, I don't understand a show in New York City where there are no people of color at all, so you can't watch that. It was devastating then. I get it now. Um, But I'm also with you. I'm kind of glad that she's saying it out loud. Like, I do think there, to use your terminology, signals, I think that's an important signal to others to really examine well, where else is that happening? But agree with everyone, and this is the critical point on whether or not your solution is time-bound. That's where it breaks down. It was such a good point. And it's, and it's a master class in what performative is. The very definition of it is not being able to measure success. Yeah. So for everybody who's thinking about inclusive marketing efforts and inclusive content, it's less about what you want to do and more about how you can solve a problem most efficiently and as you pointed out, I mean, there, there couldn't be a more crooked line between these two goals yeah. than this. Long one. <laughs> um, I don't know if it was said in the article or not, but she was actually called to apologize. That's why she did it. Um, my absolute favorite show in the entire world is Living Single. Friends, Friends stole Living Single when Living Single was taken off the air, and it actually got part of their last season was what the start of their first season was. That is why she was called to apologize, and that's why it's to African Americans and not to other races, because Living Single is a black-based show in the 90s with all these great actors, where it was four women and two men, which is how the show was supposed to start. And Lisa Kudrow's character, I don't even watch the show, I think I watched one episode, but I know that Lisa Kudrow's character was a man at first. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to do four men, two women, so not like they copied. And she came in the audition, and they said yes, would turn it to three men, three women. Yeah. And so over time, Erica Alexander, who plays Maxine Shaw in the show, she called them out because, I don't know the man in the corner over there, but he said, I would have loved for there to be a black friends and all of the single cast reached out and was yeah. like, uh, no, you owe us an apology. We want the apology by the end of 2020. What are you going to do about it? And then she did that. So yeah. she actually called us. We were sort of laughing about what the, that situation looked like. Marta Kaufman sitting in her like giant house in Brentwood somewhere, talking to her assistant, being like, what do I do? You know, like some of this as well is just making sure that there are people who have the knowledge in the room to say, okay, here's how we got here. Here's how we might, uh, might fix this. And it is worth pointing out that Friends is an overwhelmingly white show. You're totally right about them ripping off uh, Living Single, but it's... Well, yeah, and it's also just not representative of, look, there are plenty of Latino people and Asian people in New York who are not in this, and the way they handle Ross's wife coming out is sort of cringe-worthy. Um, but, you know, it was, I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, um, let's keep moving, uh, despite how awesome this conversation is, because um, I do want to make sure we talk about not just the 1990s, but also talk about uh, the future here. Um, and we're going to move to two signals here about the metaverse. So as part of the Drums Metaverse Deep Dive, Uh, writer Rosie Copland Mann argues in this signal that diversity and inclusion is too important to leave to platforms, uh, to the platforms who are building the metaverse themselves to implement. We need to have these bigger, broader conversations. Um, 
So uh, she goes on to say that the best of the metaverse will require incredible levels of creative know-how and expression, and that uh, there are spaces uh, where people are sort of not free to express themselves, and that's going to be a major impediment to creation, right? That's, you know, I think those, uh, those go uh, fairly hand in hand. Uh, quote, in order to, uh, to create a truly diverse world, we need a diverse group of people creating and developing these experiences to ensure that they avoid bias and, in turn, perpetuation of stereotypes. Now, Copland Mann also very specifically called out the fact that um, this is not just that this is an industry that is overwhelmingly, uh, you know, it, well, you know, it's, it's not a particularly representative industry. It's also just an industry that's really gendered. Something like 20 per, only 22% of people who work in video game creation are female, and most of those people are not designers, right? Uh, but we know that women, you know, women are, are close to parity for how many of them play at least some level of video game. This is, an, this is an audience that is very real and has a lot of money, but is underserved in development. And so Women in Data is an organization that just launched an NFT, and I'm going to pose here for the cringe for that, uh, to support uh, their vision of a more diverse uh, universe. Basically, they tokenized, uh, which is a funny ter term here, um, they tokenized membership to uh, this Women in Data collective. The idea is each year they will sort of redevelop the collective, find new things that they want to make sure that they push for in the metaverse space, and that that will be tied to a non-fungible token. So there's like a sense of ownership, something kind of tangible. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I do wonder what that actually means, unless you're sort of like, you know, maybe if there's a if there's a creative studio attached to that, and the NFT is like functionally a stock, that would make sense. Um, but they're experimenting this space, and I do think it's really valuable to remember that when we talk about diversity, it's not just making sure that you know every minority group is is, uh, is represented, but that all marginalized groups, women who are the majority, find themselves represented. So, Hannah, I'd love to start with you here. I'm curious your thoughts on um, this big question that Copeland Mann asked about. Who is responsible for making this change? Is it small groups like Women in Data? Is it, you know, is it the Warner Brothers and the, and the Nintendos of the world? Um, or is it, uh, I don't know, consumers <laughs> or members of the Board 8 Yacht Club? I think it has to be everyone, but I think there has to be an onus on the largest players in this space. There's been so much talk of how do we avoid the pitfalls of Web 2 in the, the metaverse? And one big necessary change is that we need to get out of this mindset of, or this hope that people will be on their best behavior on the internet. We know that that is not true. And a lot of platforms want to simultaneously talk about how they change diversity, how they bring diverse stories and perspectives to lives, but they also want to put the onus of moderation and policing behavior onto their users. I think it is their responsibility as we think about developing the infrastructure, the foundation of the metaverse to put in safeguards, to anticipate bad actions and find a way to mitigate them instead of treating like an experiment that comes you know, at the, at the cost of uh, BIPOC people, of women, of people from other marginalized communities who have to deal with navigating these places that can be very hostile to them. So, on, uh, Thank you for adding that. I, I love the idea that we can't imagine that people are going to be on their best behavior. I think that's a yeah. really valuable insight for all of our entertainment clients watching today. Um, on Tuesday, we're going to have a briefing on what Gen Z actually thinks about the metaverse. We're going to get into it. There's going to be a panel. But we have a couple of Gen Zers uh, who have been working on this all summer who I know are interested both on the panel and in the audience. So uh, Chantel, can I start with you? Because I know that you read this, these signals and had some specific, uh, some hot takes. Yeah, I think throughout my research this summer um, and just with the developing metaverse in mind, 
the biggest thing that I found is that there is more than enough data based on the internet and its conception and founding that you can look to see what's worked in the past and you don't necessarily need to say, oh, like, how do we go about creating an inclusive space within the metaverse? What, how do we um, keep everyone in mind? Like, there's more than enough data in the internet and like with policy and reform. And yes, you can say that they directly apply in the metaverse, but to actually implement and um, um, kind of modify them to yeah. speak to different communities, that you can just look to see what's happened in the past. And then like also talking to the, whose responsibility is it, it's the consumers as well to speak up and advocate for themselves and say, hey, I, this is how I want to see myself yeah. uh, in, the media, uh, in the metaverse and for the brands to listen to that and for them to speak to those um, needs and respond to them, the self-advocacy essentially. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Camilla, what, are, what were your thoughts? Yeah, um, my question in response to these signals is, who's actually designing and creating these spaces because the problems we see in the entertainment industry, a lot of them are because there aren't diverse teams working on the, or there weren't diverse teams working on these films and TV shows in the past. Who's building and designing these spaces now? Because this is a new space and if we started out with diverse teams, like I think that could be really powerful and lead to um, an exciting future. Yeah, and it's a funny question to ask ourselves because I think so often we say, what's the metaverse going to look like in 2030? But there are really, there are very real things we could, changes we can make in 2022 yeah. to make sure that we're getting actually what we want in, in 2030. Andrew, did you want to add a thought? Oh, no, I just have a question. Oh, fabulous. Oh, what's our question? Um, yeah, this is a question specifically for Lola. Uh, but, um, how do you define inclusive marketing? How does it differ from traditional versus multicultural marketing Ooh. from your point Ooh. of view? And the follow-up question is, if the content is considered inclusive, how do you maximize its inclusivity through marketing? Well, I, I, I think this is, these are great questions for this metaverse section. Uh, you've got 90 seconds. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sweet. But, I, I mean, thank you for that question. Amazing question. One of my favorite questions. And I think that we'll start with the difference between multicultural and inclusive. We've talked about this. Um, when you think about multicultural marketing, it really is focused on that goal of representation. The population is the sort of goal, right? I think inclusive marketing is doing something different. We are being fully inclusive of the cultural context of any given situation or moment, the murder of George Floyd, our history of slavery, the violence against AAPI community, the list goes on, but what are the cultural problems that we can solve and address with content and or marketing, and how do we achieve that goal in a way that helps us contribute to the business's bottom line or the brands or the, you know, uh, the, the production companies uh, or whatever it is in, in the most effective way. So it's threading that needle of thinking about this in terms of problem solving, um, measurable problem solving, yeah. instead of just looking at it in terms of representation. I actually do not really like the focus on the word representation in this conversation because it's way, way too low a bar. We don't just want to show what is. We want to create a future that is actually equitable. I think that's a fabulous one. I'm literally sitting here thinking about that. I, first of all, your, your definition of the difference between multicultural and inclusive. That is had to be one of my people. Someone, <laughs> that had to be someone <laughs> who knew I'd think checks, about. Yeah, checks in the mail. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it is so valuable because you, you, you think about, look, let, let's take a second and think. I, I'm not going to put words in Marta Kaufman's mouth here. But you have to imagine that someone like her, a baby boomer with a lot of success, who really knows what she's talking about in certain ways, 
hopefully she watches inclusive content and is able to find multicultural content would be having just that bar of representation, as you were saying. Inclusive content is her finding something in her own life in a story being told about someone who's completely different uh, than her. And that is a, an important moment of breaking. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important means of sort of breaking that, that bubble. And, you know, we were, look, we're literally talking about breakthrough content here. That's a way to hit that breakthrough. Well, and I think to the point even of, of this signal, I mean, inclusive solutions, it's great. I mean, going back to the women in data and having a space for women, as, as you pointed out, that don't have a role, um, right, when we think about video games, metaverse, et cetera. But is that, you know, a, a way out, right, or an opt-out for big organizations who can say, okay, they have their space, they have their thing, now we don't need to focus on yeah. really bringing women into the equation. So I think, and we, we talked about the workplace yesterday, same thing, right? You need to have space as we think about historically under, underrepresented and marginalized groups, but at the same time, how are you creating those solutions and ways forward so that they're brought in and there's a sense of true belonging and, and yeah. beyond the representation piece? So that is a fabulous transition to our next signal that I want to cover, because the New York Times has actually written twice about this subject in the past six months, that basically there's kind of like a girl bossification going on in prestige television. Well, okay, I'm saying that with derision. I am saying that with derision for the term girl boss, but okay, sure. Right, so, exactly, and that's why you shouldn't be using it for something like this, which is like it's supposed to be in that positive that we're like... Well, so, but there's, so there's an interesting question here, because this article talks about reconsidering uh, some of those uh, women from the 90s who've sort of been historically um, marginalized, right? So we're talking about Pamela Anderson, we're talking about uh, 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 Monica Lewinsky, and a number of different ways, and I mean, this article's really interesting. It talks about how women who became public figures in the 1990s, it was like a blood sport to tear them apart. You don't have to have wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton to know that she got a really raw deal when she was uh, first lady. But I also think it's interesting in part because this similar line of thinking was brought up in an earlier article that candidly I should have included here about uh, content around Emily Dickinson and Catherine the Great, right? So the Emily Dickinson show is definitely fantasy. It is pretty clear that it's fantasy. I love that show. The House Party episode is like everything I've ever wanted in television. Can we it's have very, one? It's very, <laughs> we can just watch it afterwards. <laughs> but a similar article talks about the Catherine the Great show. And I happen to love the Great, but they talk about Catherine the Great as being someone who is incredibly, whose politics feel incredibly modern. They do a wonderful job with uh, race-blind casting and, and bringing on the, sort of the right person for the role, not the right person who looks like the role. But that article points out that, as we talked about Catherine the Great wanting to be this great thinker who, who you know, wanted to like free the serfs, the real Catherine the Great had no interest in that. I mean, she was a hardcore politician who really didn't do much beyond, you know, she took power, that's really impressive, she led the country, she expanded it, but the idea that her values aligned with what we want sort of modern female um, leadership to, to look like is, is actually kind of, it's, it's not right, it's not, it's not accurate. And so what I'm very interested in is that this kind of tension in that I think it's very right for us to revisit some of these figures who've been maligned, but at the same time, there are other content that are sort of imagining a past for certain characters that feels modern in such a way that we're almost not even dealing with who that real historical figure is. And so I'm curious your take on, on that tension about how do we make sure that these stories for these women who were historically beaten up are told in the right way, but are not told in such a way that does perhaps a disservice to, and this is maybe more for historic figures than a figure like uh, Monica Lewinsky, who I think we could all say got a really raw deal. But there is a tension there. And how do you tell that story in a way that's compelling and interesting and modern, but also maybe grapples with some of the harder parts of history that 
I don't know, uh, don't fit into that model of pure girl boss. That's me off my, yeah. I think I, you have to ask yourself a question. Oops, no, no, go ahead. Really quickly, I think you have to ask yourself the question, what's the goal? Yeah. And, and I'll just hand it over um, to you with this. I, I, I wonder what is the harm of a retelling that has an outcome where we start to be provoked to think about things in different ways? And who stands to lose when that retelling isn't accurate in terms of how awful this woman was? Yeah. Mm. Fair. Mm -hmm. Hannah? No, I think that's such a, a good point about who benefits. Um, I, but I also think we have to separate. There's a difference between Catherine the Great and Emily Dickinson. And what you know, this article is talking about is stories that are really centered on interrogating a very specific 90s and early 2000s media context. And that media context is something that we are all still grappling with. There is a, a huge movement of millennial and Gen Z women on TikTok right now unpacking the insane damage that the early you know 90s and 2000s media landscape had on our body image on our sense of of what was normal or what was acceptable for women so in my mind i put these stories in a little bit of a, a different category but I, I think we have to be careful with balancing how do we interrogate that media landscape and its lasting impact on us versus how do we interrogate people who are, are still alive and people who are are still grappling with you know their personal role in some of these legacies I mean I, I think the, the sort of most relevant example right now is the fact that Pamela Anderson was not involved in Tom and Pammy she was not on board with her story her victimization the the violation that occurred being told in this way. So I don't know that we can hold that up as a great example of necessary work that we need to do to interrogate this landscape and this story if the subject in question is being re-victimized by it. Yeah, so I, maybe the difference there is when you tell those historics, whether you're talking about the 1790s or the 1990s, if the, character, if the, if the person in question is still alive, we must make sure that they are obviously uh, centered and included in that story, and then there are different rules for when we're looking at historic figures um, who may be more open to interpretation. Jackie, do you have a thought? Yeah, I mean, I think I really agree with Hannah bringing up the difference between a historical figure and someone who's still alive, or even someone like Anna Nicole Smith, who is right. not alive, but her family is, her, her daughter. So I think there's this sort of obligation to, like, maybe rewrite the... We can't write the wrongs of the past. We can't change the experience that Monica Lewinsky, that Pam Anderson went through, but I think we can like learn that lesson and interrogate the systems that created that and that, yeah. you know, create this sort of like zero sum game for women in Hollywood, for people of color in Hollywood, where there can only be like one, you know, blonde babe. There can only be one like black leading lady who gets, you know, and I think that we've, sort of accepted that that's the way that things are because that's the way that this industry has has worked and instead i think going forward we can do what we can to like break down those systems that have kept so many people in these like marginalized boxes of here's what a woman who looks like this or a person who looks like that gets their story told or has their reputation talked about in the media. Yeah. Well, and to draw a line between that point and the question we got about, well, how do you market in a way that's inclusive? 
I think it's taking that goal to extract the insight from the thing we're critiquing about the past, like you're talking about, and then how can marketers, even at their desks, think about how can I go to market in a way that actually helps people think about the um, similarity between an Amber Heard case and, you know, a who was the recent one, um, uh, Theranos. Oh. And, and I'm not defending anybody, yeah. but but I am saying I see a lot of similarities in how the national conversation was just vicious to these women in the way that we're talking about here. So the smartest marketers are going to be able to create these cultural m moments of conversation that end up selling their content, not necessarily by giving an opinion, but provoking thought. That's really, that is really smart, in part because it also points out that because we have more mediums now for some of these conversations, like all this stuff happened on TV and in newspapers, right? And as messed up as the Amber Heard content was, it looked different on different mediums. The way it was discussed on the CBS Evening News was different than the way that it was discussed in the depths of 8chan, you know? And we didn't have those, those platforms didn't exist in the 90s. And so for those marketers, the platform is also part of that medium. I think that's really smart. Um, should we move on to our final signal here? Yeah. Um, last signal, returning to the future. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more, too, about that concept of imagination. What does the future look like? It's in our hands to write at the end of the day. And the Latinx House, the Sundance Institute's uh, Women's at Sundance program, Netflix, Shondaland announced a joint partnership creating a new program for Latina and non-binary Latinx directors to gain experience that help open new doors in the entertainment industry. So the Adelante Directors Fellowship will be a year-long program that supports a selected, uh, selected director's professional development and creates a pipeline to support independent filmmakers as they level up in their careers and learn more about directing on a series. So this is really being in, like a long-term investment in the future of uh, inclusive uh, storytelling. So a recent 2021 study from USC Annenberg Inclusion found that uh, of the 1,300 top-grossing films released in 2007 and 2019, there are only 12 individual Latinx directors represented. And additionally, they found that only 5% of characters in feature films uh, were Latinx, and those roles were often perpetuating damaging stereotypes. Uh, on top of that, there are 62 million members of the Latinx community here in the United States, representing 18% of the population. So there's a huge window of opportunity by not investing in nuanced and progressive stories. Uh, and that also contributes to our lack of an imagination around what our future could look like on this land. So there is a rise of incubator programs for underrepresented directors and talents. But I would like to hear from the panel here, what would be the fundamental ingredients that makes an incubator useful and sustainable for the long run? Oh, yeah. I mean, Honestly, Davion, if you would mind speaking to yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what sticks out here, and I mean, these programs are incredibly important, but as we saw in the earlier signals, I mean, people, uh, you know, there needs to be a larger systemic uh, shift to house and allow for the progression um, of these individuals, right? Because what we see happening so much is you have the talent, and to your point earlier, it's not even a talent question oftentimes, but then if, you know, these large investments, as we think about films or studios, are being made on 
the individuals that have historically been in those um, in those shoes or have the connections or networks to to move up into those spaces, then you end up with these individuals talented, having the additional training, but in these niche spaces. And yes, they have the opportunity, but is it really you know at the same altitude as? others that, you know, are, are not in these or needing these programs to, to begin with because they have those opportunities. So I think these are great, but we need that infrastructure at a much, you know, higher uh, level and altitude to, to be sure that these can be successful. Yeah. Well, I'll quote very, this is the thing I say all the time about incubators, and I'll quote our advisory board member, Jackie Treblecock, who in some work that we did said, you know, incubators are full of white men for, from Stanford because they are designed from white men, for white men from Stanford. Like you design the, it's just like the metaverse. You get the outcomes you design for, right? And so I, I think this is really interesting. I love the idea of bringing in more of these storytellers. I do think there is a problem in Hollywood where we, where Latinx is just like some megastars who are randomly Spanish. You know, that's not really telling the full diversity of Latinx here in the US. But I, I think that's what that, that essential question you have to ask yourself is how do I build an incubator that, that runs in a different model, that operates, that talks to people who don't usually get talked to by incubators, that shows up in spaces where they don't usually show up. You can't just go hang out in front of Stanford Business School and the Y Combinator and hope to poach people. You have to show up in different spaces that are not just, you know, a boardroom sometime, somewhere in downtown LA or whatever. Well, and one just thing on that, the audience side too. I mean, we started the data or with the data around what audiences crave, but I would push back on what audiences, when you talk about representation, the types of stories they're actually gravitating towards. Are they the real depictions of communities and the wider uh, representation or stories that, that should be told, or is it through still this, this white American lens, um, but with characters or casting that makes it feel a little yeah. bit different and diverse? So I think we also need to think about, you know, this audience allyship, if you will, mm -hmm. that needs to happen to, again, facilitate, you know, these individuals and programs. So, um, well, I, sorry, go, go ahead. Go one ahead. more quick point on this one. I think we talked about Ryan Reynolds. He came up. This example is, I think, there's, a, there's three things we can connect. This example, Ryan Reynolds and his latest endeavor, Creative Ladder, which I'm sure a lot of people watching have heard about, similar sort of thing. Um, I'm going to fix diversity in the advertising industry by, like, making my own thing where I help train people who are diverse and then send them off without all the stuff that... Davian just told us is needed. Yeah. Um, and then there's the, 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 the Brandeis grant. Like, yeah. if you're going to do this, it's got to be in a way that's not like the Brandeis grant. Yeah. And that's my critique of, quite frankly, what, what Ryan Reynolds is doing. It's like mm -hmm. your influence would be so much more useful to do any of these things yeah. than to, like, have 200 more people in the pipeline who aren't being supported. Very well said. Yeah. Um, well, look, I wanted to land on, so we always land with a wrap-up, right? And I, we've talked about such amazing conversations today. Seriously, everybody, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled by what we got to unpack today. But I did want to end on somewhere a little bit more positive. And I'd love to go around. We sometimes break these up, but I'd love to hear everybody, and I'll keep my mouth shut. I would love to hear a best practice that you saw today. Tweet length, what is one thing that we came across today that you think would be a really amazing best practice to build some of those more immersive uh, storytelling uh, clues, and I'll start with you, Hannah, if you don't mind. Yeah, I think for entertainment brands, I think there are central questions they need to keep in mind. Whose stories are getting told? 
who decides what stories get told and who profits from their telling. And if those questions are not at the forefront of your decision-making process, it becomes easier to sort of do business as usual and not really invest in inclusive storytelling. What's the best practice you saw today? Uh, beyond the side of progress, not perfection. So don't get tied up in trying to say the right thing, but actually be about the thing and the dirty process of trying to move to something that we haven't actually realized before. So, yeah. Jackie, what's the best practice that you struck your... Um, I think that maybe it's inclusivity. Inclusivity, sometimes we think about as being for everyone, but instead I think it can be seen as being for everyone who's not who's been previously left out. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're creating content with that in mind and maybe by a, a previous, like a marginalized or underrepresented community, it doesn't necessarily have a niche, even if it feels like it's coming from a niche creator, yeah. it doesn't have a niche audience necessarily. Mm -hmm. And it might have a really universal appeal if you like give it the space mm -hmm. to be exposed to other different audiences. I love that. Davian, what's your best practice? I would say, and this is actually advice we, we gave to uh, a client in so many ways, but thinking about uh, inclusive content through both short-term and long-term indicators of success. Um, so not just thinking about those uh, historic, uh, what's worked in the past and who has been, you know, successful, but also thinking about, as a longer-term solution, diversity, inclusion, and different types of stories um, that need to be told. Amazing. Well, honestly, this was mine, inspired by, what's your name? Chantel. Chantel's amazing point. I think that was the, like, somebody, hire all the interns, but you especially. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, so I'll take it back to something that happened earlier that, that struck me. Um, I want to see more people, everyone listening, if you are in a place where um, you hear a critique of something that's been done and it leads you to want to start labeling it cancellation, know that if we don't have conversations and we don't allow ourselves to be critical, we can't ever tackle the sort of things that we saw. You know, we're making some strides at today. So in a nutshell, be open to those critiques conversations. Yeah, love that. Philip? Yeah, uh, my best practice is more targeted towards like storytellers themselves and this is something I've learned in um, film school a bit but um, asking yourself why are you telling this story and are you the right person to be telling this story? Um, I think that helps really make the story authentic and if you're doing something for the right reasons and not just to profit off of someone else's experience, I think that's where the best content comes from, so. I love that. Chantelle, you wanna take us home, best practice? Yeah, I'd say, um, and I've heard the saying before, but to get for brands to get comfortable being uncomfortable, that they need to embrace denying uh, normativity and uh, kind of challenging traditionalism so that they can make room for those different perspectives, whether it means dethroning the people in power, creating more inclusive spaces, um, both in front and behind the camera, but. I think that's where you really will see change happen. Amazing place to end. Um, uh, well, guys, this was an incredible conversation. So I, I want to thank Hannah, Matt, Jackie, Davion, Lola, Camilla, and Chantel. I love having a big group. Thank you guys for joining online. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page at noon New York time. While you're there, jump in the comments section. One of our friends will uh, happily read out any questions or, or thoughts you uh, would love the panel 
to address. Uh, tomorrow is our final day of our Equity Impact Series. We're going to be talking about beauty. It's going to be an amazing conversation. We love that topic. If you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today and every day's briefings, we'd love to give you a demo of it. It gives us incredible cultural foresight and certainty in some of these very uncertain, complex topics. So until tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed. Oh,